Welcome to The Last Word on the Crosstalk Messages podcast. Every week we take a last look at the message from the most recent Crosstalk. Enjoy this short conversation and stay tuned for the full message directly after. Welcome to The Last Word. I'm Paulina, and sitting here with me is our Crosstalk pastor, J.D. Wilhelm. And J.D., last night you talked about, gave us the next message of the Called series, um, talking about where we are called. And something that really stood out to me that I thought we could talk about today was the idea of reality. And personally, I'm convicted because I'm an idealistic person, so I like to imagine things with some fluff and best case scenarios and optimism. And so I just want to ask you to start, what do you think the importance of reality or just acknowledging the world, both things and people as it really is? What do you think the importance of that is? I think it is hugely important because then we don't live in a kind of, and I say this in a in a lighthearted way, like mm-hmm. we don't live in this fantasy land that mm-hmm. we've created for ourselves where the world is as we make it out to be, but we see, we have to acknowledge the things that are good and the things that are dark in the world around us, because that's the only way we are going to adequately as followers of Jesus, be able to walk into those places and know that I am called to be light in this place, or I'm called to be salt in this place. And that light and that salt really shines when we see it for what it is and not as we would have it to be. Yeah, that makes sense. Accentuates the salt and light. Um, What do you think the, that makes me think about credibility as believers, as we, you really emphasized outside of the four walls of the church. How do you think us being able to acknowledge reality is linked to credibility to the outside world as believers? Yeah, that is actually really interesting. I looked at, um, oh man, I'm trying to remember. It was a study that was done that defined the top three words that people associated with Christianity. Mm -hmm. And I can only remember the top two of those, but the top two were judgmental and hypocritical. Mm -hmm. And so when we view this in terms of actually understanding who we are called to be, and then seeing the world as it is, then we don't enter into it with these presuppositions that this is how the world is supposed to be. And this is how people are supposed to treat me. These are the Mm -hmm. ways in which the world is supposed to act. And rather we accept the world as it is. And we come in and show them then in turn Mm -hmm. who Jesus is and the love of God that is not dependent upon them meeting our expectations, how we think they should act, what they think we think they should believe Mm -hmm. or really just imposing our will upon them for what life should look like. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, that makes sense. And I'm thinking about empathy and compassion and what you talked about. What do you think, how is that tied with empathy and our relationship to others? Absolutely. Um, As I process that and as I think about how it's looked in my own life, change happens in the context of relationship. We can't beat people to death with the truth. We can't place on them expectations that are impossible to meet. Mm -hmm. But when we as people want to see God move and change and work in our relationships, 
It only happens in our ability to get down into the nitty gritty of everyday life and go through the messy Mm -hmm. and the hard and the difficult things with people. Not saying like, I feel bad that this happened in your life. Mm -hmm. I hope it gets better, but saying, hey, this really stinks. Mm -hmm. Now, how can I walk with you in helping to get you out of this situation or just being with you. I think that mm. the ministry of presence is oftentimes very underappreciated. And it's just the ability to show up in someone's life, to listen really well, and to resist the tendency to have to fix it. <laughs> but just being there with them and acknowledging that this is hard, man, that's the way we're going to be salt and light into mm. the world because it happens in the context of relationship mm. and not in the context of having to be right or having the right answer Mm. for every given situation. Yeah, that really encourages me because it feels practical. Like you want to know how to be, do these things and Mm -hmm. live out what you talked about. Let's just start showing up for people. And I, that also encourages me that I don't have to have all the answers or their way out or, you know, and that's where God and the Holy Spirit helps us. And we're just all humans together. So I really love Mm that. Um, JD, would you add anything to that today as we leave this topic and idea? Yeah, I think that there is this temptation to take this and say like, yeah, we need to accept the world as it is. And that's not to be like made into the image of the world. When we look Mm -hmm. at what Jesus says in Matthew 7 about us being salt and light, there is supposed to be that clear distinction between the world and us. And Mm so accepting the world as it is, is not meaning that we are conformed into the image of the world, but Mm -hmm. rather we are okay with the fact that we are set apart from the Mm -hmm. world. And so there isn't this like universal acceptance of everything that goes on in the world, mm-hmm. but rather we acknowledge that it exists and we walk into those places having a firm foundation in Jesus. And so it's mm-hmm. not this idea that everything, that truth is relative or that mm-hmm. you should, that it's okay to do whatever you want. That's not what we're saying when we're saying that we see the world as it is. It is saying that we see it through the lens of Jesus. We see it through the lens of our calling to love God and to love others and not place expectations on people. And so I just wanted to be clear as we talked about this, that Mm -hmm. this isn't like an acquiescence to the world and becoming like the world, but rather being willing to walk into the world Mm -hmm. as it is and not how we would have it. And so uh, next week, it's going to be really interesting you, Paulina, are teaching, and <laughs> yes, we're gonna, you're going to continue this talking from our primary call two weeks ago to last night, where are we called, and next week we're going to talk about how are we called mm-hmm. and really dig into how we actually walk into life with other people and love them super well. My name is JD. If this is your first time coming to Crosstalk, I want to welcome you. I'm the pastor here with Cypress Creek Church. Um, it is so good to be together tonight. And I'm just remembering, I need to turn around my hat apparently for the camera. I uh, have this weird thing that Paulina and Laura were making fun of me for before this. When I was like eight years old, I was eight years old, I had a baseball coach who didn't let us turn our hats around backwards. He said that we were allowed to do it when we were making millions of dollars like Ken Griffey Jr., 
and I've never made millions of dollars. And so I have this deep-seated fear of turning my hat around backwards for being so nonconformist in the rest of my life. The one rule that has always stuck with me is I'm not allowed to turn my hat around, <laughs> which is, there's probably something there. But uh, it is so good to be with you guys. I'm so glad that you guys made the trip out on a very rainy and weirdly cold evening in April here, and especially as we're winding down to finals. Are you guys, is anybody stressed at this point in time? <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is the time where you're like, oh, I have about three weeks to get my act together, or maybe I'll be doing this again next semester. <laughs> yeah, which is a very stressful sort of uh, reality. I've got, I've got a big paper due next week, and so I'm like feeling it in the back of my head already where it's like there's this creeping stress right of like oh I know what is to come and it's not going to be good but uh last week if you guys were with us we began a series titled called and it takes everything in me to not say a, ser- a sermon series called called just like say the same word twice but we're in a series titled Called, and we're modeling this series after a book written by Mark Laberton, who's a super smart guy, um, actually the president of Fuller Seminary, and it's and it's a great book, and I would encourage you guys to spend the $10 on Amazon. Go get it. It's a book that I read on a very regular basis and makes its way into my rotation probably once or twice a year. And it's a super practical book, even though it's written by a scholar, it is a very practical, easy book to read. And basically what he says and what what we're doing is we're going to think through the concept and explore this concept of calling. What does calling mean on our lives? And our goal is to define what our calling is as believers and how we are to live in the world as a result of that calling. And this book explores and defines the idea of calling and how it really coincides with the crisis facing the church today. And we began last week by looking at the primary call on all of our lives. And the primary call of God on all of our lives is simply to follow him, right? God created us to be in relationship with him. And so we see that what God wants for everybody everywhere is that they want, he wants them to be in relationship with him, to follow Jesus. This is our universal calling. And what stems from that is very simply defined by loving God and loving others. It ties in perfectly with the mission statement here at Cypress Creek Church. Love God, love others, make disciples. And what we see when we do this well is that really Jesus lays this out for us in Matthew chapter 22 in a very simple way. He says that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and all your strength. The second is like the first, love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so we see in this that we all follow Jesus in a manner that is unique to our life, right? We all have different contexts. We all have different giftings. We have different personalities. We have different interests in our lives. And those are, those are good things. Inside of this universal call to, to follow Jesus by loving God and loving others, we see that we have freedom to express those gifts, those passions, our personality inside of the contexts that God has already placed us in. But we all have the same basic 
calling on all of our lives. And in light of that common calling, we now look at the question of where are we called? Where are we called? And we talked about how we are to live this shared calling out in the context that we already inhabit, right? So that is in our dorm rooms, it's in our houses, it is in our workplaces, in our classrooms, in our community groups here at Crosstalk. These these are the contexts that we already live in. And really what God wants to do is he wants us to see the people that we see every day in a new light, to see the people that when we go to work and we don't We struggle to like the person who disrespects us or the person who is annoying or the person who just doesn't speak kindly. God wants us to see them as a person loved and created by him. And this requires a perspective shift for us in how we view really the world around us. And it's a whole new way of viewing life. And that perspective is shaped by this question. Where are we living? Simply, where are we living? Now, we can't live our calling if we don't know where we live. That would be the basis for this, right? Like we have to pick up our head from everything that's going on, all the stress as it's coming down to finals time. We have to kind of like spin around in a circle and we say like, who are the people here, right? We just have to identify where where am I? And this partly has to do with our context, meaning being a, for most of y'all, being a student at Texas State living in St. Marcus, right? That is where we physically live and that is what we do. You guys spend most of your time inside of that context. But the other piece of this is really the perspective through which we view the time that we're living in. So it's not only the physical place in which we live, but it's also identifying what is the world that we live in, right? How is that world constructed? And really, when we look at this, there are two perspectives on this idea of where we are living right now. Now, the first of those is to believe that in our life today, in the United States, we are living in the promised land. There are many believers in the United States who view their identity through the lens of the Exodus narrative of the people of God being led out of Egypt into the wilderness, into the promised land, right? The land of milk and honey. And this is to believe that we are currently living in the promised land. The narrative is we don't live there anymore, but rather we live here in the land of milk and honey where there is fulfillment and promise and hope, right? Now, this idea is a a narrative that is largely shaped by the American dream, right? where we have a shared cultural history of being migrants from someplace else, right? That's the basic concept of the American dream, that I can leave where I am, go someplace else that holds promise and hope for me that I can have a life, right? And so what we do as as people who, who inhabit here in the United States, we take on that shared cultural narrative because that is a piece of our, our history. And so the shared cultural narrative plays out in a very important way, and it plays out in the church for us. This perspective has the ability to create an attitude inside of the church that the church exists primarily as a means to serve us, right? 
that the church exists primarily as a means to serve us. And that's behind so much of the way in which, and there are good things in this, like the church is organized today, right? To be attractive, to invite people in, to create spaces that people want to be a part of, to offer something into their life. And this is where we see the people church hopping to find them, to, for them to find a church that gives them the greatest amount of value, right? And so that's why we put thought into the coffee. Does the church have good coffee, right? We walk in and we say, was the hospitality team actually welcoming? Was I welcomed into the space? And what does the space itself look like? Is it appealing? Is it pretty? Is there high production value? How does the music sound, right? And then we, then we evaluate the message. And really, when we look at the message, what we're looking for, or a lot of people are looking for, is does it agree with the commonly held beliefs that I already hold, right? Does it affirm what I already hold to be true? And this isn't, and I want to be clear here, this isn't meant to take a shot at anybody. Because if we are really, truly being honest with ourselves, we all fall into this mindset at points in time, right? And part of this mindset is, is a good thing. And I want to state that up front because when you guys came to Texas State, probably most of you guys went out and you checked out multiple ministries, right? I'm going to go and I'm going to try all of these different places. And what you're doing in that space is you're saying, what, are the, what is the space that is comfortable and what is the space that is safe for me, right? Comfort and safety is something that we should find in a faith community, but the temptation is, and I'll turn this on myself right now, is that when we enter into those places, asking what do I get out of it, right? So when I, seven months ago, actually it would have been eight months ago, I came here in August. Actually, I was here the first Sunday I visited and interviewed on the first Sunday that Crosstalk, that you guys were back on campus and coming to church. That's the Sunday that I was in this building. And what happened, and really the process of interviewing is both for the person doing the interview and the person interviewing is trying to determine if something's a good fit, right? If I was a good fit for this place and if this place was a good fit for me. And so I walked into the doors here and I immediately started, okay, what does is, what is the space look like? Does it look good? Is it inviting? I looked and I said, well, did people say hi to me? Because I don't know anybody here. Did somebody greet me? Did somebody say hello? Well, okay, what does the music sound like? What are people saying? How is the, what does the teaching look like? What does the staff culture look like, right? And those are really good and valuable things, but the temptation lies in the fact that I could very easily sit and ask, what do I get out of it? Well, how does this job, how does this place further my career? Or how does it help me to cultivate more influence, Right? And that's something that we all face when we enter into the church, when we enter into, into a faith community, really, as a whole. And this is an approach to faith that's largely shaped by our consumer instincts, right? The entire culture and the entire world around us is built on consumerism. And so we feed into that uninten unintentionally into the way in which we view faith, right? Now, this approach puts us in a driver's seat where it's easy to justify having certain expectations and demands that meet our personal needs, right? That is where you get the vast amount of like, 
taste preferences when it comes to church, right? Well, the music's too loud, the music's too quiet, I don't like the color of the walls, they should get new chairs, things of that nature, right? Those are personal preference things because they serve our needs. Now, this approach makes sense for us if our belief about God is that he exists to benefit us, right? If we think about this really clearly, this approach makes sense if a the reason for a relationship with Jesus is that I get something out of it. And simply, we take the best of, is, of what is available because that's what culture tells us to do. And this is to say that the blessings we receive from God are the end in and of itself, right? And as a result, the purpose of those blessings is forgotten in our lives. And this is to misunderstand drastically the purpose of the promised land for the nation of Israel. Because you see, the promised land was not a place primarily to reap God's benefits, but rather the place where God's people were to thrive in the grace of living out the call to be God's people, right? That's the purpose of the promised land. We see God says to the nation of Israel, I will be your God and you will be my people. That is the purpose of the promised land, to live as a chosen people that God has claimed. And what happened when the Israelites forgot this perspective and began viewing the blessings as the end? Well, they lost their shared calling to be the people of God. And in losing that shared calling to be the people of God, they lost the promised land. We see throughout the history of Israel, after bad king, after bad king, after bad king, ultimately Babylon comes in and conquers the nation of Israel and exiles the Jewish people out from their homeland. We call that the diaspora, the spreading of the Jewish people all throughout the Middle East. Now, that's one perspective. The alternative perspective is to view a relationship with Jesus, to be followers of Jesus and view it in the sense that we are currently living in exile, the same way that the Jewish people were living in exile after being conquered by Babylon. This is to view this place, earth, right? Not as our home, but rather as a place that we are just passing through, that we are strangers in a strange land. If you look into into Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2, he says that we are living in exiles as aliens and strangers in this world. It makes it very clear for us that the world is not our home. Now, living our call to follow God in exile really involves a dramatic shift in our expectations and a different set of circumstances, right? We have to really see the world around us very differently. And it primarily means that we no longer ask what we get out of people for our own benefit, but it primarily asks what do we give people for their benefit, right? And this changes our expectations where we no longer complain about the world being the world. But instead, we realize that we are called to love those in the world without the expectation that the world has to change to become more like us. That we can love people in this world without placing on an an expectation on them that they have to become more like us in return. 
that our love is not dependent upon their reciprocation of that love back towards us. Our call is not lived out in the midst of idealism, but in the midst of the world as it actually is. And if we look at the world, we see that it's broken and fallen, which means that we too are complicit in the world's problems because we are also broken and fallen, right? We no longer point the finger at other people and make it somebody else's fault, but we realize that in our broken nature, we too are part of the problem. While at the same time, we're called to live redemptively as followers of Jesus, loving God and loving others. And we do that wisely and faithfully by facing where we live today, our perspective of the time in which we live. Because if we admit and understand that we're living in exile, then we realize the challenges to an authentic faith and real love in the world around us are very real and they're very costly for us. Because they tell us that we aren't home. When we as followers of Jesus ask about our calling in light of our exile, our expectations suddenly change. Because we realize that the starting point for our faith is not in this well-guarded, well-protected moat of faith where everybody comes to us on our terms, but rather what we do is we take this foundation that we have in Jesus and we walk back out into the world, into the storms, into the wind, into the hail, into all of the mess of the world, and we let Jesus be the foundation through which we interact in those places. That's what Jesus is talking about at the end of Matthew 7 when he talks about the house that is built on the rock. When we view ourselves as living in exiles, what develops is a different set of practices. And they're exercised under these radically different circumstances. And this is what Jesus meant when he uses the symbols of salt and light in his teachings. If you guys go to Matthew chapter five, we're gonna start here in verse 13. And it says, you are the salt of the world, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Verse 14, you are the light of the world, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. These images suggest that there is supposed to be a marked and drastic distinction between us and the world. Something that is light and something that is darkness. Something that preserves and something that is decaying. And what we see here is the image of light in a dark world and salt in a decaying one. And these images assume the depth of need is great. And what we are to add has the possibility to make a world of difference. If we are to live out our call of loving God and loving others. But that will only be so if we don't hide our light and lose our saltiness, right? And these are not theoretical dangers, it turns out. These happen all the time for us in our life. Happens for me in my life where 
where we don't live as light and salt to the world around us, but rather we are conformed back into the image of this world. Because quite frankly, we prefer to people, we prefer that people come to us on our own terms, in our own way, in our own, the safety of where it doesn't require anything of us. So cultivating a life living in exile means that we live to learn to live inside out. Where we, when we love God and we understand the love of God, then we begin and we have internalized that. Then we begin to love others in a way that is drastically different than the way the world loves. Living as exiles means that we enter into a strange land and provide something unique. That that we provide that something unique that is for the benefit of the people living there. But instead, often we enter into the strange land that is the world around us, and we get all up in arms about the problems in the world, right? We get upset with what we see in the world around us, and we insist that everyone lives like us. And we get upset at the brokenness that they that we see. But the reality is to blame the world for its own lack of salt and light is craziness. They don't know Jesus. How can we expect them to meet us on our terms without our willingness to go to them? to meet them where they are because they don't have light. They don't have salt. We do. And we share that with the world around us. That would be like us going into a foreign country and getting upset that it's not like living in San Marcos. Of course it's not. It's a whole new set of circumstances. And so when Jesus cautions us In Matthew 7, 5, he says, first, take the log out of your own eye. That is the perspective with which we go out into the world on its terms. Because we are grounded in the foundation that is Jesus Christ, and we live as salt in life into the world around us, not blaming it for not having those things. Living in exile means living beyond ourselves. It means that our life is no longer lived on our terms. This is the inverse of our consumer-oriented culture. And as a result, what we need to do is we need to go back into our lives and we need to dig up the old habits and mantras that have been deeply embedded in our lives and we need to replace them with truth. We need to replace it with truth. And so there are a couple of myths that I want to address to do this well. And the first of which is that life is about succeeding. Life is about succeeding. If you look into the Bible, what you're going to find is that God's strategy is to use unexpected people in unexpected ways to show unexpected love to people who don't deserve it. That's what we're going to see. And that means that life is not about winning. And that, that's a problem because I've been told my entire life that life is about winning. And I like winning. Winning feels good, right? It's a great feeling. And if any of you guys say that it's not a great feeling, I believe you're lying. Because no one likes the feeling of losing, right? Because we, all, we all know the feeling of losing. And when we feel the feeling of losing, we decide, I don't want to do that anymore. That's why Taylor and I have stopped playing cards together. We were playing cards together for like a couple of weeks 
And then both of us were realizing that we hated to lose and it was like, this is not, this is not good, right? It was like Sunday after we got back from the camping trip and we're like playing cards and I'm like really tired and I'm just getting beaten so bad. And Taylor's like, you just want to go to bed, don't you? It's like, yes, 100%. I just want to go to bed right now. I don't want to be playing anymore. Like losing is the worst. You know, when I, when I graduated from high school, I told myself I was done being competitive. I was done. I was done. Because I didn't want to be that guy, right? Because we all, we all know that guy who cares way too much about something that doesn't matter, right? Like, and so for me, I went to college and I love, I love playing sports. I played co-ed C-League in everything. I wanted to be where people didn't care about winning. I just wanted to go spend time with my friends and play games that I liked to play. And so what I did is I like took my feelings of competitiveness and I shoved them down deep and I just like kept shoving until I thought that they would never come back up, right? Like, I'm just not gonna, I don't care, whatever. Doesn't matter to me. And then about like once a year, like that feeling of competitiveness would just like come out of nowhere. And it would show up in like super embarrassing ways. Like, I remember we were playing co-ed C-League dodgeball. Nobody cares, right? But I'm sitting there and I look around and I'm now the only person left on my team. And there are four people on the other team. So I'm like, well, we'll see what we can do. So I hit a guy and then I hit another guy and then I catch a ball. And now it's just me and this one dude. And I like haul off and throw it as hard as I can possibly throw and probably did permanent damage to my shoulder. But I, I hit him square in the face and broke his glasses off of his face. And the next thing I know, I'm doing the, ah, like I just won a Super Bowl or something. And I'm like, I'm that guy. Like, this doesn't matter. This is the game happened at like started at 11 o'clock at night. There's nobody in the gym. It's just me and the other people who don't care about anything. And I was just that guy, right? We love to win. It comes out of us. But what we see here is that God's approach is counter-competitive. And it goes directly against the presuppositions of our winning-based culture. It expects the greatest works to be done by those whose call comes in weakness and not in strength. If we look at Philippians 2.5, Paul says, in your relationships with others have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And Christ Jesus didn't count equality with God as something to be grasped, but humbled himself in the form of a man suffering death on a cross for you and for me. And so in that, we see that Jesus's way of relationships leads us into a faith that isn't about winning against the opposition, but about loving the opposition regardless of the cost. And that vision is very different than presupposing that God wants our success. The second myth that we have to come to terms with is this myth of instant gratification, that I want it and I want it now. And more importantly, and I deserve it right now, right? Did you guys, when you guys were growing up and watching TV, where the J.G. Wentworth commercials on, I want my money and I want it now. And I, and I feel like I still have the jingle in my head. Maybe some of you guys are like, oh, I still actually know the phone number to call for that. 
But those things were so successful because it spoke directly into the culture of the times. Because we want what we want, when we want it, and how we want it, right? That's what culture tells us is available to us. That I deserve it all, that I should have it all, and I should have it all right now. And what we see here is the reality is that we don't, in life, is that we don't always get what we want. We don't. We live in a time that is already, but not yet. Where we have salvation in Jesus, but we don't yet live in the reality of eternity spent with him. And so a life of faith teaches us sometimes we're not going to get everything we want. Exilic spirituality has to make peace with the partial rather than the whole in our lives. That we don't deserve it all, that we shouldn't have it all right now. And that's okay. That life in Christ is bigger than our circumstances. And it's bigger than our own hopes and our dreams and the things that we want. And so in light of these common myths, we again ask the question, where are we called? And if we really believe that we are living in exile, what we need is other people around us who are also living in exile. This is the great value of Christian community. You know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said that one of the first things we need to do when we is let our expectations of one another in the body of Christ and of the church die. Then and only then can we begin to find God as the source of our common life, this exilic life. This means that those of us in the body of Christ decidedly offer less than the world around us. But what we do is we invite you to bring everything you have into the community with you. Exilic living shows us that the community isn't a place to consume, but a place to give. You aren't just a consumer of goods, but you're a part of the exchanging flow of goods so that when we have something to give, we give it. And when we have nothing to give, we receive it from others. That is the beauty of it, is that it's not one-sided, that I don't enter into Christian community knowing that it's just all going to be about me. But I get to enter into real relationship with real people. And quite frankly, being in real relationship with real people, it's messy and it's hard because it's real life. It's not just all of the things that you get out of a relationship with someone else. My relationship with Johnny would be nothing if all that I wanted to do every week when I hung out with him is that for him to just pour into me for him to just feed my ego or to feed all of the things that I want out of that. But it's the beauty of the give and take that when he and I sit over a table and we share a cup of coffee, that we have the ability to pour into each other's lives, to find commonality in Jesus. And when I don't have a lot to give, he gives to me. And when he doesn't have a lot to give, I give to him. And so there's this exchanging flow that happens in community. And it's in those sorts of spaces that we find people who are also exiles, people in transition, people who aren't sure what fitting in looks like or even if fitting in is a good thing. Because it's into those sorts of communities where we learn how to love and to serve 
And it develops us and it matures us into people who then can in turn love and serve the outside world. Right? That's the power of this sort of a community. And we can make progress in developing our ability to love, to serve, and to empathize with people. To meet them on their terms without expecting them to meet us on ours. Mark Laverton says, we who follow Jesus Christ are called to be the incarnation of empathy in the name of the one we serve. We who follow Jesus Christ are called to be the incarnation of empathy in the name of the one we serve. You guys know the difference between compassion and empathy? I learned this in, a, in my social work classes. Compassion is walking down the road, seeing someone in a hole, saying, that looks terrible. I'm sorry that you're in this hole. Can I give you something to eat? Right? We feel bad. We offer a good. We do our best to care. Empathy is walking down that same role, seeing a man in a hole, getting down in the hole with them and saying, what can we do to get you out of the hole? That is how we have real impact in people's lives is when we start empathizing and loving them and serving them and helping move them towards Jesus. And so the question I want to leave you guys with is this. Where is it evident that our empathy shows up beyond the four walls of the church and is apparent in all the real places where love is so desperately needed and desired? Where is it evident that our empathy shows up beyond the four walls of the church and is apparent in all the real places where love is so desperately needed and desired? If our calling is to have credibility, it has to be road tested. We have to work it out in real life. And that means learning and responding to new ideas about the work and the thought and the creativity and the grace that is necessary to love people in the world around us. And we do that simply by starting with loving God and loving others. Thanks again for tuning in to the Crosstalk Messages podcast. Make sure you are following Crosstalk on social media at crosstalk underscore TXST. If you have any questions for the Crosstalk team, you can send us a message on those pages. We will see you here again next week.